Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Eli Morales is a licensed naturopathic physician who trained at the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon. He seeks to empower his patients to activate their body's natural ability to heal through nutrition, herbs, hydrotherapy, and homeopathy. Before becoming a doctor, he was an elementary school teacher because he was drawn to teaching children about the world around them. Now, as a doctor, he combines his teaching skills and medical training to guide patients through the journey of health. One of the six principles of naturopathic medicine is docere. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Dr. Morales? No, docere. Docere, which is Latin for to teach. Educating patients is at the center of his practice. Uh, he practices a few minutes over the New York border in Brookfield, Connecticut at Sophia Natural Health Center. You can find his website at inm.center. And that's I as an igloo, N as in Nancy, M as in Mary. So inm.center. Or you can call his practice at 203-740-9300. For full disclosure, Dr. Morales is the husband of my wife's cousin. So he is family. I know him to be a down-to-earth, compassionate individual, and I'm excited to have him on my show. Dr. Morales, thank you for coming. My pleasure. My pleasure. I always enjoy talking about my work and always enjoy talking about it with family as well. So I look forward to this uh, conversation we're going to have today. So... Tell me, first off, what does the acronym I-N-M stand for? Integrative Natural Medicine Dot Center. So Integrative Natural Medicine Center. This is a practice that was developed and is still led by Kenneth Hoffman. He is a doctor of acupuncture, actually. And uh, he runs a great integrative clinic here that, in which I'm a part of. Now, how is your clinic different than a typical doctor's office? And what services does your office provide? And specifically, what is your specific area of expertise and what service do you provide? Sure. Well, you know, you might think of a typical doctor's office as a primary care office, but we are actually more specialists. And that's how we're seen in Connecticut in particular. Naturopaths can be primary care in many other states, but not in Connecticut. So our clinic in particular, and my branch of the clinic specializes in natural medicine, integrative medicine. And on the other side, in the acupuncture component, they do the same thing, but from a Chinese medicine perspective. They treat a lot of pain and uh, nervous system dysfunction, like anxiety and stress. And while I do help with that on my side, I have a big focus on Lyme disease, digestive health, cardiovascular disease, and hormone imbalance. Uh, Just to name a few things. There's a lot of tools in my bag, and I'm able to address a lot of things, but I have particular training in those that I mentioned. Okay. Now, I know on your website, it talks a lot about Chinese medicine and um, I guess your practice integrates it with Western medicine. Is your side of the practice kind of the Western medicine side or? Yeah, in, in particular, um, I do a lot of the lab work on this side. And so we're using lab diagnosis to help drive treatment plans. On the Chinese medicine side, they're using Chinese medicine diagnosis, which does a lot of tongue and pulse diagnosis. And I find it to be accurate for the treatments that they're using to really be helping people. And very often they could say, oh, we found this on this patient. Why don't you check their liver? And then I'll say, oh, yep, something's up with their liver or uh, there's something going on with their nervous system. Why don't you check some hormones? And yep, I'm confirming through the Western 
uh, lab work, the findings of the Chinese medicine practitioner. So it's a really good integrative approach that works well for our patients. A lot of people get better when we work together. And I guess after a patient is diagnosed, what kind of recommendations do you give your patients? Well, for me personally, I'm heavy on nutrition. I talk to people a lot about how does what you're putting in your body inform your physiology and not only what you're putting in your body through your mouth, but also what you're absorbing from the environment, whether it's being environmental toxins through your skin or just the toxin of stress, the chronic stress and stressors that we experience every day actually affect our physiology and do a big focus on that. Once we have nutrition down, we might talk about lifestyle, how's your sleep, what behaviors could we change around there, how's your water intake, and then we kind of go up a, what we call a therapeutic ladder. I might recommend herbs, supplementation, exercise, and then beyond what I'm currently doing, but not outside my scope, is physical medicine, so more chiropractic components. I don't personally do that. They do that on the Chinese medicine side a little bit, and other naturopaths will do that. Chiropractors do the same thing. So I have a big toolbox. Don't use it all, though. Your office, and this is sort of the topic of this conversation today, your office produced a position statement on COVID-19. It looks like it was released at the very beginning of the pandemic. But in a nutshell, you say that people should take precautions, just like the typical precautions people should take annually to prevent the flu. Mm -hmm. But your office also urges people not to panic about the virus. Has this position changed or stayed the same? And can you elaborate on it? No, a lot of it has stayed the same. You know, wash your hands, cover your cough you know, are kind of two of the biggest things you could be doing in order to prevent any kind of infection. And then not panicking, I think, is definitely still the same. But, you know, what we do as a society is get too panicked. I don't know if that's an extreme word, perhaps, but we're seeing a lot of people doing the panic buying in the beginning of the pandemic, where you're buying all the toilet paper and being extra, extra cautious and worried that we were going to die. And, you know, it was our opinion at that time that, yes, this is something serious and people are getting very ill, but we as a clinic can help you, can help support your body to fend off virus, to help protect you, consider us a good resource for that. And we still consider ourselves a good resource for information on how to treat viruses, on how to protect yourself with the best that Western medicine has to offer that's conventionally and uh, natural as well. Does your office uh, see children? Uh, yes, we do. Okay. And do children in particular have anything to be overly concerned about with the virus, including the variants that we're all reading about in the news right now? You know, actually, with regard to the current variants, I don't know. I've been waiting to hear about information with regard to the Delta variant and children because there's a big piece coming up in a few months here in the United States. Kids are going back to school. Do they still need to wear masks? What about vaccinations? Are adults at increased risk of getting ill from children? But I haven't heard anything yet, so I don't know. The main virus that hit our country you know, over the past year. Was there a particular concern with children? No, initially, we really didn't know. We were wondering, yeah. you know, can children pass this on to other people? Or how are we going to protect the adults, the children, the vulnerable children, vulnerable adults? What they found during the year was when children were getting ill, contracting the virus, and there was a positive case, it was often very mild. And there was a decreased chance of them actually passing it on to others. Now, that isn't to say that there weren't cases of kids becoming very ill and there was this, uh, I forgot the full name, but this inflammatory condition that would develop months to weeks to months later for children who were sick with coronavirus that would be putting them in the hospital. And there are definitely some kids who are vulnerable to that. And it's not clear who, you know, if you got coronavirus as a child, were you going to get this other illness a few weeks or months later? No one knew who was most vulnerable. So it's always a concern. There is a small population where that is a concern. So do we need to protect everyone 
or just to really identify children who are vulnerable and protect them? That's a very difficult question for me to answer, but public health officials are working on that. Does your office have an official position on vaccinations? And specifically, do you have any concern about the mRNA vaccine in particular? And does your position include children? Our position is to educate our patient base as best we can with the information that's out there that we have access to. We let patients make their own decision about whether to get vaccinated or not. We don't recommend it. We don't not recommend it either. We're really a center for education. Like I said, you know, in my bio, it's one of my favorite things. I get patients who come in and ask me, what do you think about the vaccine? Should I get it? And they say, well, what are your concerns or what are your questions? And ultimately, they're happy. They leave without me saying yes or no, but they feel fulfilled because really they have hesitations. They want to know more and they want just to talk about it, dialogue with a practitioner about it. You know, it's a lot I hear. Uh, I went to my primary care and I asked them if I should get it and they said yes. And then I asked questions and then they got mad at me. You know, that's not fair to the patient. That's going to make them more hesitant. If your goal is to have someone be vaccinated, give them all the information and let them make their own decision. If you give them more information and then you're hostile, they're going to make a decision more quickly to, uh, well, I'm not going to do this. So very interesting point. And uh, I actually think that um, with some of our tech companies, uh, Facebook, um, YouTube, Facebook kind of slaps a label on anyone who even mentions the word vaccine. I kind of think that big brother component of Facebook actually does turn people off. It makes people a little paranoid. So we did a survey of our readers about vaccinating children and almost evenly split in terms of people's position on it. In a nutshell, people were concerned about the vaccine's impact on hormones, specifically for girls, and whether it could impact a girl's future ability to bear children. People also expressed concern about inflammation of the heart. And finally, people simply wanted to know whether the risk of getting our children vaccinated was greater than the risk of our children getting the disease itself. This first concern about hormones, specifically for girls. What are your thoughts about all of that? Yeah, I'm not sure where that comes from because I haven't heard anything yet about hormones being affected. When you get into the preteen years, when any girl or boy is going through puberty, the hormones are changing and the hormones, the endocrine system is not in a box by itself. It's affected by you know, anything from the immune system to digestive system to the stressors on the body. So, you know, I think it could affect it, but with regards to like how it could affect it, and is it actually a risk and a big concern? That I don't know. And, you know, I think it's a legitimate question that people could be asking and that I hope would be addressed when, you know, they already made it available to 12-year-olds. If they haven't addressed that yet, I would certainly be hesitant to move forward with vaccinating a 12-year-old without that information if I had that concern. And people also express concern about inflammation of the heart. Yeah, well, we have seen in younger males in particular that there is a condition called myocarditis that is developing with the vaccines, particularly with the mRNA vaccine. And I actually don't know why that is. I haven't looked into the physiology of that. I also think it's a legitimate concern. I think if you're concerned about it, you should look at the studies or get some information about how frequent it is. Because myocarditis is certainly a side effect of other vaccines that are out there that you might be getting for your child or young one. And I'm asking, have you asked that same question about that one? And how many people do you know that have actually had the myocarditis or other side effect? Uh, So it's important to actually get to understand what the true risk is. And I don't have that data in front of me, but I'm sure it's out there. How many vaccines were given to kids or particularly to young men between the ages of 12 and you know, 40 basically, and how many of them had myocarditis. 
And it might actually be very low and you can really look at, oh, my risk is low. I will take that risk. Or it might be high enough that you're nervous and you just avoid that particular vaccine or vaccines altogether. So, and if you get myocarditis, mm-hmm. is that a death sentence? Is that something you recover from? Well, it's not necessarily death sentence. I don't know enough about it myself, actually, with regard to the recovery. But what it is, is an inflammation of the muscle around the heart. So anything that compromises the function of the cardiovascular system can be scary and of course could lead to mortality. But from what I understand at the moment, and again, I asked someone to look it up, is that it's bringing people to the hospital, but then it's managed. But again, I don't know the mechanism behind that. And then finally, people simply wanted to know whether the risk of getting our children vaccinated was greater than the risk of our children getting the disease itself. I think just from based on this conversation, it seems like your focus is really just on education and not mm-hmm. necessarily giving an answer to your patients, but to give them the information for them to make their decision. This last question is difficult because, you know, what are all the risks of getting vaccinated and not getting vaccinated? And it's not just whether you're going to get sick or not or get a side effect from the vaccine because there's also social risks, you know, it's mental health risks to not getting vaccinated. I think that needs to be considered when you're looking at trying to do a risk benefit analysis, particularly around teens or you know, around older elementary school age is that if you don't vaccinate, what kind of social life will be available to your family and to your teens? Are they okay with wearing masks? Are you okay with them wearing masks? Are you okay with other families who are vaccinated saying, no, you can't play with my child? And I'm not saying that you have to follow social mandates like that, be independent, but that's a risk to the mental health of a body and mind who you actually don't control. So I always caution parents to say, you know, really consider what the effects will be on your child's mental health. That might not be enough for someone to say, oh yeah, I'll get vaccinated because then what are the actual physiological risks? And, you know, we really don't know. They haven't been studied long enough in this population. And in fact, they weren't studied, in my opinion, long enough in adult populations. And we're hoping that the long-term risk will be low. We don't know. It's been less than a year that yeah. you vaccinated. And that's scary to me, particularly with children, particularly with children who are developing an immune system or under five years old. I would be very nervous to vaccinate at this moment with any kind of trial. Uh, so I'd want a lot of questions answered, a lot of data behind, you know, how's the mechanism affecting the developing body, the developing mind, the developing immune system. And it's a scary thing too, because right now the uh, Delta variant, it seems that the death rate in general is a lot lower, even though the infectivity is higher. But what if another variant comes out that's more deadly, the children in particular? Yeah. Then how do we measure the risks? It's a scary world right now for everyone, especially parents who are trying to make a decision about weigh the risks versus benefits socially, mentally, physically for their families. And I I don't know the answer. I appreciate your ambiguity with all of this. I think that's just very honest. So I appreciate that. You know, there's also a movement about masks. One of my neighbors, a few houses down, actually placed a placard on their lawn urging schools to stop mandating masks. I recently watched a report on TV news about dangerous levels of carbon dioxide from children wearing masks all day at school. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I actually saw that lawn sign (laughs) by your house. And I don't have enough data on that other than, you know, my daughter who's five went to school all year and seemed to be okay wearing a mask all day. And if there's actually data affecting behavior, then it's an issue. If there isn't good data or if parents and kids seem to be all right at home, that's okay. You know, the diffusion of carbon dioxide and oxygen through masks should be fluid and 
the same as like going out in Halloween and wearing a mask or wearing a ski mask if you're going skiing or you have something over your face and you know, no one complains about that. So that I'm not so sure about. And I'd love to see the data. Well, I will tell you, I mean, luckily I get to work from home and I will tell you anytime I had to wear a mask for an extended period of time, my biggest complaint was actually the straps behind your ears. It starts hurting the back of your ears a lot. Yeah. There are other components. Maybe there's some more mechanical components. You know, kids can get irritations. If kid has asthma, that can be an issue, actually. They can't get enough air if the air is polluted and then it's stuck in there. Or if the quality of the mask is so high that the kids are really breathing in too much of their own carbon dioxide, I would have an issue. But I would love to see more data just in general and hoping that it would just say kids are at very low risk. They should have their masks off. They don't need vaccinations, you know, and they should just eat, have some antiviral nutrition and they'll be okay. I mean, that's really the ideal thing for me. I guess getting away from vaccines and masks, I do hear people talk about the importance of children being exposed to germs. Is this truly important? And if so, do you have any concerns about our society becoming overly concerned about with cleanliness and the overuse of hand sanitizer? Kids develop their immune system, particularly from the age zero to four or five, and they need to be exposed because it teaches the immune system how to function properly. It's arguable, and I think there's good research on this, that in the developed world, there's a lot more allergies, asthma, eczema. These are all a type of immune response that comes along when there isn't a lot of exposure, as much exposure to bacteria and viruses in general. And that can be said for an over-sanitized world, you develop these other conditions, autoimmune diseases. If you compare it to other countries where there's less hygiene, they have a lot more viruses and parasites, but strong immune systems as they age. Compared to us as a Western society, we have a lot more autoimmune disease, a lot more allergies, a lot more asthma, a lot more skin diseases. And these are because, in my opinion, our immune systems were not properly taught when we were young. So I do think it's important to expose children to disease, particularly viruses. I don't know necessarily, I can't say that for COVID-19 in particular, I think that's a very controversial statement at this moment, but other benign known viruses and bacteria, I think you know it's a healthy thing. In your expert opinion, what is the best way for both children and adults to stay healthy and to overcome COVID if exposed to the virus? To stay healthy, eat a well-balanced diet, very colorful plate, you know, all five colors of the rainbow, mostly fruits and vegetables, a small amount of protein, and avoid sugar. This is like the biggest thing. I just don't think kids should eat sugar. That's one of the best things you can do for a kid is to have them avoid as much sugar as possible. Definitely very addictive for sure. It is very addictive and not healthy. You know, it's not natural to eat sugar. All sugar is usually bound up in fiber. Think even about sugar cane, but like, you know, where sugar comes from are beets. They're very fibrous foods. We hold on to the sugar, we strip that away, and then that sugar. It's not natural to do that. And then if you do get sick, vitamin D is very important. Vitamin C is very important. And then a healthy, nutritious diet with good sleep and exercise. And these are the very basics of health that everyone agrees on. And I think they're the some of the weakest approaches that we have in general in our lives. And that's why some people tend to get sick a lot or don't recover well. You know, those are the greatest risk for the coronavirus are those with comorbidities, which are other conditions that are actually lifestyle conditions, very a lot of obesity and diabetes, type two in particular. These are conditions of overeating, particularly carbohydrates, and that can all be avoided. And then a greater blockade against viruses getting in it and replicating and hurting it. I did the Daniel fast a couple of years ago. And what I discovered with the Daniel fast is about day two or three of it, 
my legs, the muscles in my legs were really hurting, like a lot of pain. And I think my body was going through uh, sugar withdrawal because that's the, part of the Daniel fast. You refrain from eating any kind of sugar. It was interesting to sort of see my body's response to the lack mm-hmm. of sugar. And you and I actually, uh, about a week ago, you and I had a conversation about exercise and what you do for exercise. So, um, so what is the minimum amount of exercise a person should get? Oh, well, that's also a great question and a controversial one. The general recommendation for cardiovascular health is 30 minutes a day of cardiovascular exercise, at least five days a week, maybe. And that's been stuck there for a very long time. Some people argue you can do less if you do intermittent, uh, not intermittent, sorry, interval training where you do, you get your heart rate to go up to not necessarily the max, but within 80% of your max. And then for about a minute or two, and then you stop. And you, for half that time, you let your heart rate come back down and then you get it back up again. And then you stop and you get it back up again. You can do that interval training for less than a half hour and still get the benefits. And you know it's interesting because it's partly an evolutionary perspective that our bodies are designed to do these short bursts of running and then stop resting, running and resting. And actually kind of primes the heart and the muscles to be able to respond quickly and dynamically to stress. And the stress is the running. And that can be seen as healthier. It depends on what your goal is, really. I mean, if you're going to do long distance running, you, you want to be able to go for, you know, have a, an aerobic exercise for 30 minutes or more. But if you're just looking to just boost your heart health, you know, these kind of interval components can be enough. And the research has shown in both those areas to be true. Great, great. Dr. Morales, thank you so much for your time today. And again, for our listeners, you can visit inm.center or you can call 203-740-9300. And uh, Brookfield is right over the border, uh, one town past Danbury. So right over the New York border. And uh, you know, so it's a hop, skip, and a jump to see Dr. Morales. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. You're welcome. Take care, Brett. And I just want to let patients know that if they're interested in coming, we see a lot of New York patients and are able to order labs over there and take some insurance. So we're able to help a lot more people than just Connecticut. So Great. thanks for the opportunity. Great. All right. Thank you so much.